Hi, I'm Kathleen Wilhoyt, and you're listening to What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors. Hey, everyone, this is C. Thane Dixon. On today's episode of What a Character, I will be talking with Robert Davi. In our interview, Mr. Davi will talk about making his feature debut alongside his idol, Frank Sinatra, returning to music, and why Italian-Americans are underrepresented in Hollywood. It's all that and more on today's episode of What a Character. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. Before we get on with the show, I just want to tell you all about how you can help make this podcast a smash hit. As many of you may know, the success of a podcast all depends on the support of the audience. A good number of subscriptions, likes, and listens can help us attract high-profile guests, thus making the podcast a success. So let's say that you enjoy this show and you want us to make more episodes. Well, you can help us make that possible by subscribing to us and leaving reviews on podcast platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, by liking and subscribing to us on YouTube, or by following us on social media. You can find the links to our YouTube channel as well as our various social media feeds in the episode description. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Your help will be greatly appreciated. Now, on with the show. My guest today is an actor, writer, director, crooner, and radio host who has played what many people consider to be one of the greatest Bond villains of all time. He grew up as a child in Queens, New York, with dreams of becoming an opera singer, but eventually he decided to give up opera singing and become an actor instead. In the early 70s, he began studying acting techniques under such legendary acting teachers as Lee Strasberg, Sandra Seacat, Stella Adler, and even Martin Landau. After years of honing his craft, he gained his first screen role in the 1977 TV film Contract on Cherry Street, where he got to act alongside one of his greatest heroes, the chairman of the board himself, Frank Sinatra. After that, he gained guest starring roles on shows such as St. Elsewhere, Charlie's Angels, The A-Team, Hill Street Blues, and many more. In 1984, he made his big screen debut in the film City Heat, in which he starred alongside Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood. This led to him getting memorable roles in such films as The Goonies, Raw Deal, Action Jackson, Die Hard, License to Kill, Maniac Cop 2, Predator 2, Showgirls, and many more. In 1996, he gained his first regular TV role playing the FBI agent Bailey Malone on the hit NBC series, The Profiler. In 2008, he made his directorial debut with the heist comedy, The Dukes, in which he starred alongside Chaz Palminteri and Peter Bogdanovich. In 2011, he returned to his musical roots and released his hit debut album, Davi Singh Sinatra on the Road to Romance, in which he performed covers of Frank Sinatra's best songs. Since then, he has performed his Sinatra tribute act to concert audiences all over the world. Most recently, he has been seen in films such as Expendables 3, The Iceman, Roe v. Wade, and many more. He's also currently the host of The Robert Davi Show, which is a talk radio show that can be heard all across the nation. Please welcome our very special guest today, Mr. Robert Davi. Mr. Davi, thank you so much for uh, appearing on my show today. All right, Colin, thank you. 
Now, what, what was your life like growing up in Queens, New York? Well, I was five years old when we left that. Uh, we left Astoria, Queens. And I remember, you know, the playground at school. I remember getting my tonsils out by a guy named Dr. Benabia when I was probably two years old, eating ice cream. I remember the Steinway Street and Phil's Deli and Walken's Bakery. And uh, I, I remember certain things. I remember getting my hand caught on the... Uh, the fence of a nursery school as I was trying to get out. I was trying to escape <laughs> and I, I, I fell and hung on to it. I was hanging on by my hand. And uh, uh, so I remember, I remember what I remember. I remember in the apartment we had, we lived on uh, 31, 31, 29th street. And I remember that apartment. I remember going to the, um, having these little chickies for Easter or something. Mm -hmm. And I decided to give them a bath and decided to uh, um, to then dry them in the oven. <laughs> and, and, you know, my parents waking up and seeing what I was doing. And I think my father fell because the water was, I, I don't know, I made a mess of stuff. I remember certain things. Um, and then um, I remember my grandfather having Christmas trees, uh, selling Christmas trees, being with him on the, the lot. You know, it was great. Long Island was a great place to uh, uh, Astoria at that time. Uh, still is now. It's, it's like the Tribeca of uh, New Tribeca is, is what we have in Astoria. Uh, but then when I was five, we moved to Long Island, to Dix Hills. And uh, then I spent my time in, in, on Long Island until we moved to, uh, till I, till I went to college and then moved to California. Well, moved to Manhattan and then California. Who were your heroes growing up? What singers and actors did, did you idolize? Well, you know, there was the towering figure of, uh, I, I loved uh, the opera singers like Caruso and, uh, you know, I mean, listening to them. I'd go in the basement and put on these old record players and wind them up and listen to these wonderful artists. Um, uh, from Caruso to Tito Rufo, to Della uh, you know, so many different, and but of course, the popular music of the day was Frank Sinatra. He was an Italian immigrant, uh, son of Italian immigrants. And, uh, you know, when I was in utero, all in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, you know, the forties and the fifties, that's what was playing around, you know, and uh, uh, his Picasso-esque contribution to music and to film, watching those old films. And also, you know, Dean Martin uh, was it. Right. And uh, Jerry Lewis, I loved Jerry Lewis. I loved Humphrey Bogart and Spencer Tracy, all those old films, uh, Anthony Quinn. Uh, there were quite a few uh, figures, Lawrence Olivier, um, that I, uh, Marlon Brando, um, who I then worked with and became friends with. Um, you know, so back uh, growing up with, you know, it was, it was that, that era of, the, uh, of Sinatra, Dean Martin, you know, I, I like Eddie Fisher. You know, there were so many. Al Jolson. You know, anyone great. I was uh, I was studying and hungry to learn from, or at least osmosisly. <clears throat> Why did you decide to move away from opera singing and, and become an actor? Well, at that time, it was now my teens. So, um, and I used to go to the Metropolitan Opera, and I was studying with a guy named Michael Signorelli that they gave me from high school. 
And I was a baritone with the heart of a tenor because the tenor arias had the romance. The baritones were the tough guys, the bad guys, the most of the villains, uh, oddly enough. Um, and, but I had a high lyric baritone voice as a young voice, but I had a high B natural and I, I loved those arias. So I would sing them a lot. And um, I, uh, I pushed my voice at that time. Um, and um, then um, wrote a letter to Tito Gobi, who was the Marlon Brando of the opera world. He was the greatest Scarpia, great Falstaff, wonderful uh, uh, Verdi baritone. And uh, I mean, he just was magnificent, uh, Tito Gobi. And he was in Italy and I wrote him a letter and he wrote me back and he said, when I come to the Metropolitan Opera to do Tosca, he says, I want to meet you and you'll sing for me and whatnot. He wrote back, humble man. Because uh, I told him that I was confused and I had hurt my voice and I didn't know who to train with next. And um, he had a school at Villa Schifanoia in Florence. He had a master class. So he comes, he gives me a call, I meet him. Uh, I go to the opera, I see his Tosca, was astounding, you know. And then I sang for him a couple of days later at the Ansonia Hotel on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, I was having trouble uh, vocally a little bit then. And then my voice broke out and he goes, both he and his wife heard what they needed to hear. And then he invited me to, uh, to Italy. And he also um, then said, what you did was, you didn't, um, uh, what I, uh, he said, I pushed, he said, I, I, I'm taking roles that I shouldn't have taken early on. He says, I played, a, and even as a, a baritone, I played uh, Cavalleria Rusticana, where I played Alfio. He says, I haven't played that till I was 40 years old. He says, lyrical, you're a lyrical baritone. Do the lyric, and he showed me some exercises. And then he said, I will find the teacher for you. I want you to come to Italy. And then wow. he found a guy named Dan Farrow from Juilliard and then Samuel Margulies. And uh, so because of that conflict with my singing, I then, and I was acting at the same time. So having had to now getting good training and, and then rehabilitating my vocal cords, which was strained, but concurrently I was acting because I had gotten first place in high school uh, New York State School Music Association solo competition and first place dramatic interpretation and sixth in the nation with dramatic interpretation for these high school leagues that you do for drama and speech. And um, my idea had, I had gone to Hofstra University under a drama scholarship and then went into Manhattan and was studying with Stella Adler and you had mentioned that in the beginning, people I've trained with. Uh, so I was always planning on acting and I loved film, uh, wanted to do film and, you know, perhaps classical plays. I had done a lot of Shakespeare and Chekhov. So what happened was I then focused on the, on the acting while my voice was being rebuilt or healing from the, from the strain. So you studied acting under Lee Strasberg and now he always had the reputation of not being very nice to his students. What was your perception of, of Mr. Strasberg? Okay, so my mentor was Stella Adler. Mm -hmm. She was brilliant. I don't know if you know who that was. Yeah, yeah, she's a legend, yeah. Yeah, she's the only one that worked with Stanislavski. She was part of the group theater. And um, then I, 
got into the actor's studio and that's when I was able to work with Lee. And uh, no, he was, he was, look at this, this business is tough. If you're gonna be a little wuss about it, get out. It ain't, it ain't easy to be in this business. It's very difficult to be in this business. And um, so they prepare you for that toughness and they prepare you in terms of wanting to uh, uh, work hard as an actor. So, you know, when they say, it's like the old Russian ballet masters, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's difficult, it's not an easy life. So you have to be disciplined, like a great football coach or a boxing coach, you know? Um, I was watching this Muhammad Ali documentary that Ken Burns did and how intense, you know, I mean, Ali, you know, was not beat the heck out of. And when he didn't train hard, he got, you know, so, yeah. So I, I, I didn't find, I, I don't look at it like that. Oh, I got offended. I, I'm not one of those, you know. That, that, that didn't bother me. Yeah, I take it you're not a fan of the whole woke generation then? No, I'm not a fan of the woke. <laughs> I think it's lobotomized. It's a lobotomized, effeminized generation, you know, and um, it's, uh, uh, it, and then the whole idea of political correctness is kind of um, gotten haywire and it's hurting people because their tongues are stapled to their foreheads and they're afraid to say even to a woman, hey, you look pretty in that dress because uh -huh. it's this, you know, and and uh, and I'm not saying we don't make progress with all of the, of, with all of this. But I don't need pronouns. I think all of it is kind of absurd. Uh, I think people should be respected for who they are. Mm -hmm. I don't think you know we should change the name of mother and father, mm -hmm. because of this woke craziness that they're going through. It's absurd. Contract on Cherry Street was your motion picture debut. How did you get cast in the film, and how did it feel getting approval from one of your idols? Well, I was studying with Adler and we were not allowed to audition for anything for three years till we finished the program. And because uh, it was intense and it was great and uh, you're learning your craft. So I was working as a waiter and working in the fr fruit and vegetable stand from seven at night to seven in the morning. And, um, and I was doing extra work, you know, on the side, little commercial stuff and movies, you know, background stuff. And, um, of course, Sinatra all of a sudden is going to do his first film in eight years. And that was the talk of New York. And um, it was all around. And I had an agent, a guy named uh, Mort Schwartz, Barry Morse, who became a big casting director. And uh, I had, they had put me up for that Sinatra film, Contract on Cherry Street. And I said, hey, what's happening with that? He goes, uh, well, they're using, Sinatra's using all his friends, his old friends. He says, so there's not really any parts in there. I go, darn. I go, where's the casting office? He said, uh, it's on Fifth Avenue. I says, I'm going to go up there. He goes, go ahead. What do you have to lose? Which I did. I went up there. You know, nowadays with all the security, it'd probably be difficult. But this was off of Fifth Avenue. So I go up to the uh, casting office, guard in the lobby, yeah, he says, Cherry Street. He goes, third floor. Thank you. I guess people were coming in and out. You weren't doing the sign-ins like you do nowadays and all of that. So I, I locked up. I go to the third floor. There's a woman behind the desk and one sitting on the desk. And I'm at the door and they say, oh, can we help you? I go, I understand this is where Cherry Street is casting. Yes. I says, um, 
I was told it's all cast, but I, I, I just on an impulse decided to come up and see. And they looked again and they said, not quite. Uh, you have a picture and resume. And I said, well, not with me. I didn't want to be presumptuous. Mm -hmm. But when they said that, I said, oh, there's an opening here, you know? And uh, bingo, I, I, I went back to the agent. I said, hey, give me a picture and resume right away. They told me to bring it tomorrow, but I'm going to do it right now, so, which I did. They were in different aspects of the room and they laughed. I says, why wait? And they said, thank you. And that morning, the next morning, which was a Friday, they called up and I wind up, uh, 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 they say, come back at six o'clock, read these scenes. We want you to read for these, this character. I did, and uh, as is the custom, uh, you know, you leave the, the room and you linger a little bit because you don't know. You want to see how long it takes for them to open a door before they, you know, say something about you. Right. And um, they opened the door immediately and said, don't leave yet. And the next thing I know, five minutes later, casting director Shelley Ellison, Rachel Farberman, comes out and says, uh, what are you doing? for the next three months this summer. I go, you tell me. She says, it's 99% yours. We'll call your agent on Monday. And wow. I wind up getting this character, one of the Sonatos brothers, uh, me and Jay Black from Jay and the Americans wow. wind up playing the Sonatos brothers. Was, was Jay Black a hero of yours as a child? Well, I used to sing, oddly enough, in the shower when I got discovered as a singer, I was singing Caramia because it had that operatic thing and it was also a popular song. I don't know if you know the song. Cara mia, why must we say goodbye? And it's it, yeah, I mean, but it's really big, you know? Right. Each time we kiss my heart, bye. And uh, so yeah, all of a sudden now, Jay Black, you know what I mean? I'm yeah. With Sinatra, who's, you know, the biggest figure in 20th century music and film. And, uh, you know, Jay Black, who was a legend in uh, in the, in this rock and roll thing, and uh, so yeah, it was fun. And one of the... what do you remember about working with Henry Silva on contract on Cherry Street? Henry Silva was a great guy. We were friends over the years, and um, another legendary actor, and also uh, Harry Guardino. Hmm. Harry was in it, and Harry was one of the funniest people alive. I mean, Harry Guardino was hysterical. Henry, Henry was had a good humor, but he wasn't as as funny as as Harry, and uh, yeah, very very serious minded Harry Henry Henry Silva is still alive. So, what do you remember about working with Burt Reynolds and, and Clint Eastwood on City Heat? Yeah, that was a funny shoot. Um, it was originally Blake Edwards. Huh. Now, I had done a TV series called Gangster Chronicles, and I played this character. And um, I get a phone, my agent at the time was Phil Gersh, used to be Bogart's agent as well, legendary guy. The Gersh agency is a big agency, very prestigious agency still till today, his sons run it. And um, he, Phil calls me, he says, hey, Blake Edwards wants to meet with you. Now, Blake Edwards is a legendary director Son of Pink, you know, the Pink Panther films, right. Breakfast at Tiffany's. The Great Race. Yeah. What? The Great Race. That was one of his films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. So now I go Culver City. I meet with 
Dwight Edwards. I walk into his bungalow, he's sitting at the desk. Robert Dobby, he goes, I'm sitting in bed with Mary Poppins. <laughs> we're watching television. We're watching a show and this actor comes on and I sit up out of bed. And so does Mary, <laughs> meaning Julie. Right. And he goes, who's this? This is a new face. And um, wow, for whatever reason, he goes, so anyway, I'm doing this film, Kansas City Jazz, and I want you to play the main bad guy. It's Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds. You'll be going up against them. Wow. All right, this is nice. So we make the deal. Didn't read, nothing. I'm excited. Great part. And Blake and Clint have a big falling out. Hmm. Blake leaves the project. Clint gets Joe Stinson, terrific writer, who wrote Sudden Impact. Go ahead, make my day. Right. And Stinson rewrites the script and uh, makes my character two older characters. And this other character was a, they, 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 they were, the, again, these two other hitmen under these guys. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so my agent calls up, he says, look, good news, bad news. They changed the script. They did what I just told you. They says, they, that you're a pay or play. So you'll get paid no matter whether you do the film or not, but not for the character we thought or what Blake wanted you for. There's a different character and they made him, uh, I think it would be good for you to do it because it's Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds and it's your first, you know, mm -hmm. those two guys never been together. And, and I felt crappy about it, uh, belabored on it because it wasn't the character I was supposed to play, which was a bing against those guys. I would have been blown up. And it just, so, but I did it. And uh, Clint was very, Richard Benjamin took over directing and it was a good experience. Uh, got to be there with Clint and got to meet him and Bert. And Bert was very, they were both very good, you know, both very, very friendly. Um, and, um, There was a, uh, there's a funny story about that shoot. This woman came on the set in a limousine mm -hmm. and I'm standing outside in Universal waiting to go on, you know, just watching, sucking everything in, watching Clint give ideas to, to Richard Benjamin, you know, whatever it was. And the two of them working and so I'm watching and limousine driver, who had gone into Universal, back lot of Universal. And he gets out of the car, he comes over to me, he goes, hi, how are you? Yes, he goes, he goes, ah, I know you from, uh, he recognizes oh, thank you. And um, he goes, I'm here with Princess Dragonetti from Bulgaria. Oh, really? Yeah, Princess Dragonetti, friend of Clint's. Oh, now I'm first time on that set on Universal. Princess Dragonetti, of course, the princess is gonna come and say hello to Clint. This is how it is. Mm -hmm. I remember the people meeting Sinatra. You know what I mean? So right. it was like, so there was, you know, it, okay. So I'm gonna be nice to the people. I'm not gonna be rude. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. you want them to go back. What a nice young actor that Robert Davi is, Clint. You know, whatever the thing is in your mind or just being nice to people. So it goes on and on. I'm waiting for them to hook up with Clint, but they're talking to me. And she, Dragonetti comes out, I go, well, you know, you're Clint's guests. And now, now I'm like a little 
because you're not supposed to invite people. It's a closed set. Right. And um, a big limousine. And then I'm talking to people and all of a sudden, um, lunch break. And I go to lunch and they're following me. I'm waiting for them to go to Clint. Clint, you're from, I don't know you from a hole in the wall. Why aren't you like with Clint? That's what I'm thinking about. So they go, oh, we're going to get, you know, so lunch and now they're getting something to eat and I'm sitting down and they come and sit down with me and I'm going to myself, what the heck's going on here? You know, the Clint's people. Well, Clint will see them and come by and say hello and all of that nonsense. Well, the executive producer was a guy named Fritz Manns, ex-army guy. Could be a bit of an asshole. So I'm sitting there innocently and he comes over to me. Robert, I want to speak to you. I go, sure. And I go over there and say, who the hell are you to invite people on the set? This is a closed set. Who the hell? Are you? I says, wait a second. I don't know who these people are. They're, this is like Princess Dragonetti. She says, he said, they're friends of Clint. Don't give me that bullshit. Princess Dragonetti, my ass. He says, how dare you? I said, whoa. Now, years later, when I did Raw Deal and I got very close to Arnold, and we would, I would hang at his house and Clint would get, would be there and stuff. Mm -hmm. I finally got to tell Clint one night as we're all sitting in the living room telling stories. I go, Clint, I got to tell you this story about Princess Dragonetti. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was a funny moment and he laughed and uh, yeah, Fritz could be, a, you know. So, uh, but yeah, he, they were great. What was it like working with John Irvin on Raw Deal? I always felt he was a very underrated director. He made, he made some great films like Dirtle Dogs Diary. of War and Hamburger Hill. And Hamburger whatnot. Hill. Yeah. yeah, John Irvin was great. I liked him a lot. He was a very passionate director. You know, English, you know, one of these warriors, these English warriors. And uh, he was very, very encouraging and very, we got very friendly and close and um, made a good picture. You know, and uh, yeah, he was, I mean, we had, we were at a bar one time, having a little dinner, sitting at the bar. And uh, saying, you know, it's, it's, uh, and he had a, a salad. He goes, it's like, it's like, it's like you gotta just, and he puts his hands in the salad and he goes like this with it and the salad. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of eccentric. But in other words, it's courage, it's being fearless, it's making choices that can uh, surprise you and not expect it. Now, when you set out to become a film actor, what, what kind of actor did you envision yourself as? Did you envision yourself as like a lead movie star or as, as a character actor? Well, everyone's a character actor. Mm -hmm. Everyone is playing the character. And I studied, like I said, Anthony Quinn, and I studied Humphrey Bogart, Lee Marvin, another one, uh, all the greats, Spencer Tracy. And Humphrey Bogart played a ton of bad guy villains, weasels, before he made the transition, when he met uh, John uh, Houston and George Raft turned down the Maltese Falcon. And that was a turning point in Bogart's career. He still played guys with edge, but that was a leading man. He became a leading character lead. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, and, and I had talked to Stella Adler about it 
And she said to me right away, she says, you're going to get, they're going to cast you as the bad guy. She says, don't let that bother you. Could because you're eventually going to become leading man and uh, this, that, and the other thing. And uh, so having studied other careers and the progression of the choices you make. Now, what happened with me was after the Bond film, I should have made different choices perhaps, which I, I hadn't. And, uh, you know, I got to play leads in different, you know, maybe B pictures and stuff, mm -hmm. um, always doing an A picture, but where I wanted to play. In the, and then finally, when I did Profiler, I was the leading man in Profiler, you know, for four years on NBC, mainstream television. So there was interesting things there that happened. Now, in 2008, you made your directorial debut with The Dukes. When you wrote the film in the 80s, did you always intend to direct it? Uh, myself and I had a friend of mine that I met on Gangster Chronicles. And I was doing, his name was James Andronica. And, I, and when I was doing um, Raw Deal, mm -hmm. I had the idea of this picture. And I, it was brewing in me in the late 70s. And I told him the idea. And he says, hey, yeah, okay, let's do this. And um, I hadn't initially thought of, uh, or maybe I did think of directing it. Uh, I don't remember clearly, but I remember writing it and wanting to get it done. And then that was in the drawer from 1987 to 2008, you know? And uh, periodically I'd get the f promise of funding and it would fall apart and show it to different people. And some aspects of it were were ripped off actually, until finally I got to make it. I got to meet a man named Frank Visco, who became the executive producer and put a whole team together. John Paul DeJoria, Bob Byers, uh, several other gentlemen put the money into it to make the picture. And Chaz and I, we met on Wise Guy in the eighties and became fast friends. And uh, so, at what point did you feel confident that you could direct? Well, I never looked at film just as an actor. I always liked the, the auteur aspect of filmmaking. What's he doing with the camera? What's the vision of the director? How is the overall picture being made? You know, so while I may not know all the technical lens names and stuff like that, I do understand cinema. And uh, that was something that wanted me, you know, I wanted to... Uh, and I was affected by early Fellini and uh, and uh, Mario Monicelli, because the Dukes has a uh, it's an homage to like Isola Dignotti and Ivitaloni of Fellini, mm -hmm. and uh, Mario Monicelli, of which I got uh, best screenplay and best first time directed by two of the major Italian and and French uh, d directors that won Oscars and the Palme d'Or and everything from the uh, Festival of Comedy in Monaco. Wow. And was chosen to be in the premiere section with Redford and uh, Gavin Hood, Sidney Lamette, Julie Trainer, and um, uh, Redford uh, and Tom Cruise in, in this, uh, the Rome Film Festival in the premiere section. My little picture with all these other big pictures and we got tremendous reviews and response. How did it feel when after directing the film um, you know, getting this big response after all the hard work you put into the film? It felt, it was very gratifying, you know, because you're, you're saying, 
we were we were lumbered by a couple of decisions we made in terms of sales, which it could have been an even bigger film. We should have continued on the festival circuit and let this thing grow. And we had, I don't know if you know the film director, Giuseppe Tornatore. He uh, did Cinema Paradiso. Great oh, okay, film. yeah. Yeah, it's a great film. But his sales agent was at the screening in Rome, in the Sala in Rome. And uh, she uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, I want to have dinner with you tomorrow night. And she was a sales agent of Giuseppe Tornatore. And uh, she said, I'd like to represent you. Do you want to direct more? Yes. He says, I, I want to represent your film. He says, it's a little jewel that needs really protective handling. She said, it'll take me two years, but, and the investors didn't get it, didn't get that. And I did, and uh, you know, they put their money into it and we got, made wrong decisions, big time. Now, when you cast Chaz Palmentieri and Peter Bogdanovich in the film, what, what effect did they have on you as a director? You know, with them being experienced directors, did they come and say, hey, uh, if, you might want to try this, you might want to try that, or did they no. just let you do whatever you wanted? Yeah, because I was a very strong bull. I had a vision. As a matter of fact, one time I was telling Chaz, directing him, he says, yeah, but I, and he was, he was questioning me. And Peter said, Chaz, listen to your director, Robert's right. And uh, he said, okay. <laughs> because then it becomes a den of thieves. If you don't have, you know, I'm open to ideas, but when I know what's right or, you know, like even, for instance, I tell a story in the film Chaz, I, I had an idea as we were prepping. I says, you know what, I'm gonna give him a girlfriend and I want him to have like, like big girls, right? So I said to Chaz, Chaz, you're gonna have a love interest in the film or, you know, girlfriend. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, uh, I go, yeah, big girl. He goes, yeah, like what? Like Giselle Bunchen, the model? That was big girl to his brain at the time. I says, yeah, you know, well, a big, a big girl. He goes, well, big, yeah. Oh, all right, that's interesting. He goes, how big, you know, six, two, six, three? No, Chaz, big, a big girl. <laughs> what? I'll get back to you. I go, wait a second. I says, every woman is gonna fall in love with your character because it's not about what she looks like. And so what if she's a little heavier or heftier? It's still about something else. And he, he says, I'll think about it. And then he did it, of course, because it had humorous qualities to it. And it was, um, it was uh, very sweet. And then after the film and the reaction he got from it, he goes, he was then telling people, yeah, I told him I don't wanna have a model as a girlfriend, I wanted to have a hefty guy says, stop bullshitting them, tell them what it, what it was, you know? So, but he was great. He's a, he's a great actor, great friend. He's a brother. And, um, you know, he, 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 he's, you know, your casting is, you know, that's the, the acting is, is their issue. And what you do is you capture the, the, the magic as a director. And we have that relationship in life, you know, it's fun. Now in 2011, you may have returned to singing with your album. How did it come together and what inspired you to want to come back to music? Well, when I did the Dukes, mm -hmm. which is about a doo-wop group, I sang one song at the very end. And the response to that from people saying, why aren't you singing? Why aren't you singing? And um, I said, ah, you know, I, 
but it had been for myself. And Sinatra had died in 98. And I felt there was a story that I could tell. So I did a, a uh, demo of four songs. My composer for the Dukes was a man named Nick Tenbrook, brilliant arranger and composer. And um, so Nick uh, gave me a couple of arrangements and I went into the Capitol Records and did this demonstration, this demo. I brought it to the head of Columbia, uh, to, to, to Disney Music, Bob Cavallo, who's a friend of mine who was a major uh, music manager of Prince and Earth, Wind and Fire and Alanis Morissette and many, many acts, many acts. And um, I said to him, Bob, we had lunch one day. I said, I want to go back to singing. Go, what do you think? He says, who should I study with? He goes, Gary Katona, without hesitation. He says, I'll call him for you. So I started working with Gary Katona, who's a brilliant, brilliant vocal uh, builder. And um, I did the demo. I brought the demo to Bob Cavallo at Disney, played it for him. He goes, hmm, you want the truth? I go, yeah. He called his guy from upstairs, his marketing guy, Kurt Eddie, who came down. And after Kurt Eddie listened to about a minute of it, he said, let's do this. And then I was off and running. And then Bob introduced me to, uh, to Jim Yuri, who was the head of Universal Music Distribution, UMG, and uh, Ron Spaulding, who had the label, independent label called Fontana. And uh, they gave me my own label because you make more money that way as opposed to just licensing, uh, you know, them owning it. And um, that was, uh, you know, and, and, and when I did the demo, word had gotten around Capitol Records that there was somebody interesting singing here. And Paula Salvatore, who was running Capitol at the time, all the bookings in the studio, she had this play for, and, and, and the great legendary, uh, 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 engineer, Al Schmidt was there and he heard it. And um, Nick Tenbrook, who did the arrangements, we had this brilliant engineer called Dan Wallen, who had gotten a couple of Academy Awards for his film work orchestration. And, you know, not orchestration, his film engineering. And so I had a tremendous team of people behind this uh, first record. You know, it seems today that rap music is the reigning genre on the Billboard charts, but do you think that vocal jazz is going to have a big mainstream comeback one day? It's, it'll always be there. You know, it, if, uh, musical habits, uh, you know, that genre, jazz to me, or the great American songbook is the Shakespeare of America. It's the golden age of American music. And, uh, you know, it's, it's look, I, I like what Kanye, Kanye West does. I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there's all great music there, man. I mean, there's so many great, you know, you got uh, so many wonderful artists uh, doing things that touch you. Um, for me, I relate more to the American songbook, that, that amalgam of the American experience that is a... Uh, uh, and I think, you know, in a way, the discord in society, it was a more ordered 
improvisatory communication. And uh, I don't know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's complex. I, I don't understand, I do understand the rap aspect. Uh, I wouldn't know how to make it. You know what I mean? I'd need a producer, you know what I mean? The, the, right. the other songs, I understand them. I, 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 I love the, the romanticism of the lyric. Uh, although, you know, lights, lights, you know, I mean, right, right. in that new song he has, you know, flashing, uh, you know, and what he's, and what he's telling his story, you know, but the vocal prowess of having to sing the American songbook, that's a different artistic form. It has a classicism about it. You know, right. I could rap, hey, I've been down there, you know, I could start right. doing a rap thing, give my voice, give me some beats. And all of a sudden, I've been you're tied around. The woke society's getting me unwoke. <laughs> you know what I mean? You could do a whole number of things. You know, it's 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 a man's a girl, a girl's a man. I want a baby, <laughs> mama man. What's going on here? What are we doing? You know, I mean, there you go. <laughs> and then, ooh, I mean, you could put it together. I'm, I'm sure I could. I I fantasize sometimes about you know under a different name, doing something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally different name, doing some kind of rap thing. Yeah, and, DJ uh, Sanchez. Yeah, who knows, right? <laughs> so but, you, uh, that that other thing, the 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 American Songbook, to me is is uh, you know, it's just beautiful. It's timeless music. It really is. Mm -hmm. Now you've played a lot of mob bosses and a lot of mafia-oriented film and TV projects over the years. Have you ever? met real life mob figures who've come up to you and said, Hey, I, you did a great job and whatnot. Uh, you know, over the years, you mean, you know, so many wonderful, interesting people from heads of state to, I met Prince Charles and Diana, you know, I mean, the, to, to royalty, to all kinds of people. Yes. And they all come around and say, Hey, that was pretty cool. One time a guy, I played Lucky Luciano in a movie. Lucky Luciano, I played in a, with Lonnie Anderson. And uh, I was in Beverly Hills and someone said to me, sitting over there, that guy's 97, 98 years old, whatever it is, 99 years old. He was close friends to Lucky Luciano. He saw you play that character. He wants to tell you something. And I said, oh, really? And they tell me, you know, I want to tell you, you played Lucky. And, you know, he gave me compliments and all that stuff. So yes, over the years, Meyer Lansky one time, a friend of mine was in Florida and I was doing that TV series, Gangster Chronicles, 1980s. And I got a phone call and they said, hey, we're in Florida here. You won't believe who watches the TV show you're in. I go, I guess not. He goes, I'll tell you when I get back to Los Angeles. He got back, he says, on a Saturday, Sunday morning in the afternoon, because the show was on at 10 o'clock at night, a Saturday, he said, we turn on this thing, and it was, uh, Maya Lansky would watch this show, and he would comment on you playing Vito and how, you know, you captured the Vito. Anyway, wow. it was interesting on that, knowing that that was on the radar, because it was about him, Luciano, Benny Siegel, Vito Genovese, you know, the whole... Right was a historical thing. It should have, should have, could have still been on TV, actually. 
When you play these mafia figures, do you do a lot of research into the role? What, what do you do that makes the roles believable? Yeah, that's, you know, it starts with the research. Research, social situation, the whole, you know, you know, you, you, you learn about it, you know, you find out about it, you find secret little things about it. You know what I mean? And right. uh, it could be one thing that, you know, I recently played Vito Genovese again. I played him as a young man. And then I played him now older in a film called Mob Town. And I read one thing about, you know, he was a man of, the soldiers loved him. He wasn't a politician. The soldiers, the guys on the street loved him. Had a, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, of course he had a temper as they all do. But it was, uh, you know, so you, yeah, you compile. It's like when I did the Bond film, learning about Pablo Escobar and Carlos Leder. And uh, you learn about that world. And then you, you uh, when I played a Palestinian, I learned about that aspect to it when I did Terrorist on Trial. You know, you submerse yourself in the music and the culture of the, uh, uh, and the social circumstance of the character you're playing. Now, everyone in Hollywood talks about diversity and representation, but I, I find it odd that you don't see a lot of Italian-American actors and stories in the sort of film universe that is Hollywood. Why do you think that is? Because they're full of shit with their diversity. I mean, look, at I remember years ago, it was like, we're going to play this character, we're going to go Hispanic or we're going to go black. Fine, I understand that. Mm -hmm. We should have... We should represent the population, but Italians will, you know, were, were 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 relegated to mobsters and other things. But you know, understood that. Mm -hmm. And um, but there, there's there's quite a few, uh, you know, diversity. Forget the diversity of that. How about diversity of thought? Right. How about the diversity of people thinking differently and still unifying and working together, as mm -hmm. opposed to. Let's not let that person in the club because they don't think like we do. So now we, we don't want to work with them. That's a danger. And it's only people that, that care about the nation. Before, when the left talked about the blacklisting, the blacklisting came out of people that were trying to hurt America. That's where, you know, they were, they were investigating people that they knew were communists that wanted to hurt America. Now, what's happened is people that love the country and see it as the, as the founders did, now all of a sudden it becomes something else and they're the enemy. And, uh, you know, so the left has gotten way left and, uh, you know, it's, it's both sides. I'm an independent, mm -hmm. but it's uh, unfortunate that diversity of thought is, is crippled. Now, you recently worked on Franco Nero's directorial debut, uh, The Man Who Drew God. What was it like working with Franco Nero? Well, he's a legendary Italian guy. He's a friend of mine for years, and he's one of the Italian legendary, you know, actors. Yeah. And um, and uh, it, he was just, you know, a dream to work with. Great. I knew him, and uh, it was fun. I play Avogato Fauci, as a matter of fact. The name of my character is uh, Fauci, who's a lawyer who defends. It's based somewhat on a true story of a painter or an artist who can sculpt without, by just listening to your voice, he can sculpt a person. 
Now, I, I know there's a lot of controversy about the film because Kevin Spacey was cast in it. Do you think he should be allowed to work again, you know, despite all of the hubbub and you controversy? Know, I've heard the controversy. I've not met Kevin Spacey, although we both did an arc of Wise Guy. We both sing. He did Bobby Darin. I did a Sinatra. I've known musicians that worked with him. I knew that he was very respected as a tremendously respected as an actor. I respected him as an actor. Uh, I knew he was funny. And now meeting him and spending, you know, the time with him on the set and, and, and afterwards, I found him engaging. I found him intellectual, reflective. I found him um, searching, seeking, understanding, um, and hysterically funny. And I've, I, I, I found it a bit tragic that you know, he had not been, I, and I, I learned a little bit about it. I don't know all the stuff, uh -huh. but he had not been convicted of anything. He had been accused of something. They did not go to trial. And uh, the, uh, someone wrote an article that was right after, um, right after uh, I came back from Italy about Kevin Spacey. A woman wrote the article. And the article was very interesting. And what she said is he did not do what any healthy American male didn't do to women. In, in a certain way, he, mm -hmm. she, she says yeah. this, you know what I'm saying? Right. Because, you know, look at, and this is, you know, you, you get a lot of people that want to attack you because you say some nice things about Kevin Spacey. And then people will say, well, what about this? And what about that? I don't know about all of that. I know there are allegations. I know that there are issues, but I got to tell you, I've been in Hollywood 45 years. You want to tell the truth? Tell the truth. Right. You know, no, don't start shooting one person because of allegations of something. You know what I mean? Right. That it, he, you know, he apologized for what may he if he have offended someone. Again, I don't know. I, I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. But I know that there was the apology if he had offended someone. And um, the, um, look, when I was growing up in the theater and I was a younger actor, if I went back now and accused every actor that grabbed my ass mm -hmm. or did something inappropriately because it's a woke thing now, and complained about it just to draw whatever it might be. It'd be a dishonest thing because you know what I mean? You're in a situation because you're in a situation. If you're in a situation, you know, I, and again, I don't know all the allegations. I don't pay attention to that innuendo. I know there were certain things with, you know, younger people and older people. And um, if drinking's involved and partying is involved and the intimacy of the moment, you know what I mean? I, mm -hmm. I, you know, there's so many different things I've experienced over the years with people doing stuff. So, uh, and I, I think I, and I am, I'm Catholic, you know, as, mm -hmm. as horrific as acts could be, you know what I mean? I do not, I don't judge, mm -hmm. you know, I don't judge. I, I found him engaging. I found him thoughtful, reflective, um, sensitive, um, and, um, I think he should be, you know, given, you know, a, a, another chance. 
Because I'm telling you, I've been in town 45 years. I've seen things. People know things. Right. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. Kind of like, uh, you know, there, there, there's a fear of something. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's kind of hypocritical in a way. Now, tell us about your upcoming film. And I'm saying I oh, don't condone sorry. any behavior. Right, right. You made that clear. You know, yes. I'm not condoning bad behavior at all or pedophilia or whatever accusations. Are. I'm not condoning that. You know, people think, oh, well, you condone. No. I'm saying, how come there's no, where's the trial? And, you know, I, I, there may be things that come out in the future, you know. Uh, I mean, I've heard rumors of, of differing things that, that may come out that exonerate, you know, that that say a different story. Not to say that, you know, you're in, uh, anyway, so right. let's move on. No, I know what you mean. Well, let's get to a segment of the show where we take fan questions. Every time I do a podcast or I'm, or I'm planning a podcast, I'll go on social media and post a little questionnaire and, you know, I'll get a flood of questions. So here we go. Uh, Scott LaRoche asks, what was it like working with Ann Ramsey? Well, Ann was a tremendous person and uh, was a lot of fun working with her. She did a great job as Mama Fratelli. And I think at a certain point I told her, Ann, every time I talk, I want you to slap me. Because <laughs> I wanted to, uh, I wanted, you know, I, I improvised the singing in the, in the film for Jake. And I wanted him to be someone who no one would listen to except the brother in the basement who was tied up and I had to bring him his food. And because I had to bring him his food, he would listen to me sing. But, you know, so I, I uh, and uh, she walloped me a couple of times. And, you know, we would drive her crazy a lot, me and Joey arguing, stop it. And she was quite humorous and a wonderful, wonderful, uh, nothing like uh, Mama Fratelli. Just a soft, wonderful lady. John Michael asks, what is your opinion on Son of the Pink Panther? Why do you think the film failed? I don't know if it failed. Um, it's the last film of Blake Edwards. And I think that, um, you know, uh, Roberto Benigni is a brilliant, brilliant uh, talent. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you why. Hmm. Frank, Frank Hicks asks, uh, what was it like working with John McTiernan on Die Hard? Well, John was a terrific filmmaker. He had a very strong vision and he was able to um, encourage that in the actors, you know, what he saw and what he wanted. And um, he had a big buzz on him. He did Nomads and... Um, uh, John, very intellectual, very, very... It's a shame he's not directing more. What what happened to John McTiernan? He went to prison and then came out and didn't I direct know, anything. Some, there was something, some stupid thing that happened that, you know, come on. Again, it's it's it's, it's hypocrisies with, with some of the things that, that some people may get caught with and some people may not. Let me just throw up. You know, there was some kind of thing. You could look that up. Mm -hmm. I don't like to get into all of that nitty gritty of stuff. Before we end this interview, can you leave us with some words of wisdom? To thine own self be true. As Polonius said to his son Laertes, 
this above all, to thine own self be true. Also courage and to go against the current. Because if you don't go against the current, uh, you could wind up like a uh, what happened in Germany in World War II. When you see things happening, and and also not to uh, also again in terms of work, work hard at what you want. You can manifest and dream, and you can accomplish what you want in life if you put the time and the work into it. That's very good advice. Well, Mr. Davi, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. This has been a wonderful interview. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. Good luck on your next project. Thank you. And now the end is near. And so I face that final curtain. My friends, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I traveled each and every highway and more much more than this I did it my Well, that about wraps it up for our interview with Robert Davi. For those who are curious about Mr. Davi's film, My Son Hunter, you can stream the film on Breitbart.com or even purchase a DVD copy of the film at MySonHunter.com. The film stars Lawrence Fox as Hunter Biden, John James as Joe Biden, and Gina Carano as a Secret Service agent. So if you enjoy political thrillers and are fascinated by the recent Biden family scandals, then you may want to give the film a try. Now, before we end this episode, I just want to remind you that if you love the show and you want us to grow in popularity, you can help us do that by rating and reviewing this podcast. You can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. You can even leave a review of our podcast on our website at whatacharacterpodcast.com. Just click on Rate Show and you'll be taken to a page where you can give your critique of the show. And while you're there, you can even donate to our podcast by clicking on the PayPal link and submitting your desired amount. And don't forget to subscribe to our email mailing list if you want to receive email alerts about upcoming shows or even receive email exclusive episodes of our show. You can do this by typing in your name and email address on the right side of the homepage and clicking on subscribe. Now, if you want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so. If you have any guest suggestions or you just want to tell us how great you think the show is, you can do so by sending us an email at westgrovemedia at gmail.com. You could even leave us a voice message on the show website by clicking on the microphone button on the bottom right and recording a message. And please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. And if you watch us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, please give this video a like. All in all, your support will definitely help us not only make the podcast successful, but it will be greatly appreciated as well. Anyway, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Join us next week for our interview with Kathleen Wilhoyt, where she will talk about acting alongside Charles Bronson, playing drug addicts, 
and auditioning for Quentin Tarantino. It's all that and more on next week's What a Character. Thank you for listening and take it easy. Bye. Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh, I'm Dwayne Robinson, LAPD. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. <laughs>